morning. Try that one more time. Good morning. Well, you, oh, there we go. There it is. You guys were fantastic the first time, by the way. Usually it takes two tries, you know, for people, but man, you guys were. One more time, so we got it all together. Ready? Good morning. Hey, great to be here with you today. My name is Peter. Great to uh, worship together and to look into God's word uh, this morning. Welcome again to those who are tuning in online and also uh, from one of our, micro, our uh, mission sites. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you knew in your bones that God was calling you to something? Something hard, something difficult, something that in your own strength, in your own power, you knew it would be pretty near impossible to do, and yet you still had this deep sense in your bones that this is what God wants me to do. But then you try talking to some people about it. You start sharing it with them, your friends, your, your parents, whatever it might be, and it's like they're trying to talk you out of it almost. Maybe you sensed God was calling you to adopt or foster a child. Maybe you sensed God was asking you to sit down and share a meal with the homeless person that you normally drive past on the corner. Maybe it was God calling you to stay in that difficult, loveless marriage, even though others were trying to persuade you against it so you could fight for it and see it healed. Maybe It was to speak up for somebody, to speak up against someone that you know who's being bullied, whether it's a classmate or it's a colleague, whatever it might have been. When you shared it with others, thinking they would understand, thinking they would rally with you and come alongside you in it, you found instead that they were trying to talk you out of it. Clearly God isn't talking to you or clearly God didn't mean that or... Clearly, why why would God even ask you to do something so hard like that? Some of the things we might be familiar with hearing. I remember being in my 20s and a book uh, written by an author not even a decade older than me hit the shelves. You might have heard of it called Radical. Radical. And I'm telling you, I couldn't put it down, not because I didn't want to, (laughs) of course. It's a very hard-hitting book. It's bent on exposing the ways that we water down the gospel and settle for a comfy, cozier version that sounds a lot more like the American dream than the call of Christ to take up our cross daily. It hits at our wallets. It hits and calls into question our ultimate allegiances. It it causes us to examine whether or not we are even in the faith. At least that's what it did for me. And I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of person who when I discover, you know, a, a new restaurant that I like or, or a great new album or a killer TV series, I can't help but talk about it. Anyone else like that? Okay. Everybody around you, I'm so sorry that we're this way. <laughs> but, but I remember some of the first conversations I had with others while reading this book. And honestly, I was a bit surprised. 
I found myself relaying all these ways that I was being convicted and confronted with my own sinful blindness. And it's like one by one, people were taking me, putting their arm around me and saying, hey, hey, they're, they're trying to talk me down. Peter, that, they're trying to convince me that what I was hearing was wrong, that, that Peter, that's too serious, or, or it can't be what the Bible says, or Jesus didn't really mean it like that when he said it that way, and all these kinds of things. On and on it went, and I found myself wrestling with this question. Am I off base here? Or is it perhaps that we've so lowered the bar of what it even means to be a Christian today? And that's the question we're going to grapple with this morning. Have we lowered the bar of what it means to be a Christian? Please turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21, we'll be working our way through verses 10 through 15 this morning. And while you're turning there, um, I want us just to take a moment to really sit in this space. Just look to your neighbor next to you. Look to the person on the other side and say, it's good to have you here with me today. We get a chance to work through this together. Let's acknowledge we're not isolated. We are one working through this text. So with that, Acts 21, starting now with verses 10 through 11. The author Luke writes this. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, sometimes when I'm working through a text, I find it helpful to identify a few key words to help us march through our passage. I've got three for us today, three words, and the first is this, drama. Turn to your neighbor and say, drama. Turn to your other neighbor and do that better. Say, drama. Okay, What is with all the drama? I mean, let's just step into the scene for a moment. Can you imagine if right now, right here, somebody starts going around and they're taking off other people's belts and they start tying up other people's hands and feet like it's some kind of a rodeo. Like this is awkward, right? You don't need me to tell you that this is kind of awkward. So what is with all the drama? Because apparently that's what's happening here with our boy Agabus. Well, it turns out Agabus is a prophet, and this isn't his first rodeo. We met him back in Acts chapter 11. He shows up, predicts there's a famine coming, and then boom, it happens. Drought, famine, no food. He comes from a long line and tradition of prophets, guys like Elijah and Elisha and John the Baptist, who we met in the Gospel of Luke. Others as well that God would choose from time to time to communicate to them and through them to his people. And now as for the theatrics, this this display, Agabus is employing uh, something in the prophetic tool belt known as dramatizing. Dramatizing. You see examples of this when prophets like Hosea marry a prostitute as a way of conveying how God's people had become like an unfaithful wife that he would have to redeem. Or like when Ezekiel, check this out, Ezekiel, he cooked bread over human feces for an entire year. 
Now, I'm all for a good sermon illustration, but that's going a little too far, don't you think? (laughs) Anyway, these are examples, biblical examples of prophetic dramatizing. So in essence, Agabus, God has given Agabus here some kind of a revelation of what's to come, and Agabus is trying to illustrate it. He's trying to dramatize it so that other people can understand more clearly what he seems to perceive. And the meaning here that he appears to be communicating is this. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, bad things are coming your way. And watch how everyone responds. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping. And breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since Paul would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Our second word for our time this morning is this, heartbreak. Heartbreak. The people are heartbroken for what they fear is going to happen to Paul if he goes. And Paul is heartbroken over his friend's words about not going. Let's start with Paul's friends. Now their response seems natural to me. Agabus has just demonstrated that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, chains are coming for him, pain is coming for him, hardships and difficulty are coming for him. And so the people start to do the only thing they know to do. Paul, don't go. If there's pain there, don't go, right? It's too much. It's too hard. If you know there's difficulty there, then why go at all? And on the one hand, this makes sense. Have you ever wanted to protect a friend of yours from unnecessary pain? Or parents in the room, have you ever seen play out in your mind's eye the likely possibility of your child falling to their eventual doom so you quickly swoop them up from that harm? This is natural. It's natural to want to protect someone from unnecessary pain. But what if the pain here isn't unnecessary? What if the anguish, the suffering, somehow is actually necessary? On the surface, Paul's response of what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart appears a bit cold to me, but I've come to realize that's not the case. I think he's weighing it seriously, and I also think he's feeling torn. There's a settledness in his spirit, yes, a sense of this is what God is calling me to, and yet he's faced now with the also present reality of what the decision to go to Jerusalem is going to mean, and he sees it most clearly in the tears of his friends. Before we can understand Paul's inner turmoil and heartbreak, we we have to understand Paul's heart. He actually shares it for us in another place. But before I give that to you, I I want us to take a look at this first. Here's a snapshot from Paul's missionary uh, timeline. It's like a rough estimate of the different years and what's going on. It's kind of hard to read. So I'll go ahead and just kind of tell you what's happening. On the left, here are the years, 47 AD, 49 AD, 52 AD, and so on. 
And then from there, so here, look at 52 to 55 AD. We see that Paul's in Ephesus. He writes a letter to a couple of different uh, places. But Ephesus, we read about that last week, right? That's where after that time, he, he talks to the elders. Jeff shared a powerful message about the heart of a shepherd from that passage in Acts chapter 20. And if you skip ahead to like 57 to 59 AD, we see that Paul returns uh, to uh, Jerusalem. So that's what happens after the passage that we're in. And sure enough, all the stuff that Agabus said happens to Paul and he gets bound and he's sent away and all this kind of stuff. But here we are now in the middle, AD 55 to 57. And we find in that time frame that Paul has written a letter to the Romans. The Romans. So right before this situation, if we want to know what's at Paul's heart, what he's thinking about, what is his pulse and his, his heartbeat, then we have to look at what Romans says, because that was the last letter written before all this took place with Agabus. So let's take a look now at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 2. Paul writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So why must Paul go to Jerusalem, this epicenter of Israel? Why? It's because he so desperately loves that people to the point that if he could, he would sooner burn in hell for all eternity if it meant that they could somehow know Jesus as their Lord. Can we sit with that for a second? If someone put you on the spot right now and said, quick, choose now, you or the person next to you dies and goes to hell and the other person goes to heaven and lives forever, how in the world would you respond? Paul goes, hands down, I'll bite the bullet and die if it means that they can live. Paul said it back in Acts 21, verse 13 again. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is so much more than talk for him. This is his heart. He would rather die even an eternal death, Romans says, so that no one else of his people would die without having first surrendered to Jesus as their Lord. Wow. This is a crucial turning point in Luke's writings, by the way, and it's not the first time that we've seen him do it. Earlier this year, we worked our way through Luke's gospel, and we came across a couple verses. Let me show you two. Luke 9 Verse 51, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to, what's that say? Jerusalem. Next verse, Luke 18, 31, and taking the 12 disciples, Jesus said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him and we'll stop right there. Does that sound familiar? Going to Jerusalem, their face is set. They'll be bound. They'll be killed. Why? Why? Because of the heart. The heart 
is there. The heart that says, I would give up more than my life. I would even give up my eternal life if I could, if it meant that others could find their life somehow in Jesus. Paul could say it because Jesus did it. And as Paul followed Jesus over the years, the very same heart of Christ grew within Paul. (laughs) Are we getting this? Are we seeing what's happening here? It's no wonder Paul couldn't be persuaded, right? (laughs) Paul, they couldn't talk him down from it. His heart is set. He is singularly focused. He, and he's looking exactly like Jesus, embodying that very same heart for humanity. And the question that we have to grapple with is this. Are we, are we ready And that's our third word, ready. Paul says, I am ready, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Are we ready? Ready for what? Well, ready for whatever hardship you are enduring or may be asked to endure by God for the sake of other people finding Jesus. Are we ready for that? Paul said, for the name of Jesus. And here's what that doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean just because it's hard, it must be holy. It's not what it means. Paul's not giving us an example of someone who just does the hard thing because the hard thing is always the holy thing. Like he's not saying, hey, if you and your spouse are working full-time jobs and you have like seven kids and you're trying to figure out what to do with schooling, clearly homeschooling would be the hardest thing, so do that. Like he's not saying that if you're homeschooling, that's totally fine. I was homeschooled for five years. I turned out great, kind of. But anyway, all that said, he's not saying just do the hard thing. He's saying, I'm ready for what? For the name of the Lord Jesus. His readiness is tied to the glory of Jesus, not his own glory. Consider for a second the Heart of Life reading plans over the last two years. Last year in the same page series, we, read, uh, we committed to reading the entire Bible cover to cover in one year. That was hard, right? Just me? This year, we're spending the same amount of time reading just two books of the Bible, two out of the 66, Luke and Acts. Now let me ask, is one of these years reading plans more holy than the other? No, both are holy. Just because it's hard doesn't necessarily mean it's holy. Paul's not doing it for that reason. He's doing it, as he said, for the name of the Lord Jesus, no matter how hard that might be. Because it's not about him. It's not about what's hard. It's not about some self-glorifying martyrdom. Look at me suffer as I do. Like, that's not it. It's about others finding life in the only name by which men and women and children are saved. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's holy. At the same time, holiness may demand something impossibly hard from us. It may demand from us a willingness to live on less, 
sacrificing more than just our surplus because it's only an outlandish display of generosity that will drive someone else toward Jesus. It may require moving out of our neighborhoods because God has made it clear that our impact there for the kingdom is over and done and it's time we move on to another pocket of town. Holiness may demand starting a life team or a mission site, committing to a particular people group or committing to work nights because night shift workers need to hear Jesus too. So I'll flip my body back and forth because it's the only way that they will. The list goes on. Holiness can demand all kinds of things. It may even require using our abilities in one realm and then strategically employing them in the things of eternity. Look, I'm a city kid. You don't need me to tell you that. You can tell, right, by my scarves and how I drink tea. Like, that's a part of my identity. One laugh. Very good. Um, But here's where I'm going with this. Hunting is something I'm generally unfamiliar with. But by being a part of this church community, I've learned a few things. For one, there's such a thing as managing a herd. Managing a herd. Like, it's not like you just show up one day and hope to get something good. Like, you're taking a whole set of months, maybe even a year, like managing it and trying to see, uh, you're trying to keep an eye on the up and coming bucks and just try to keep, try to feed them, try to nurture them, all this kind of stuff. Some people are able to manage a herd of deer for upwards of a year, maybe even longer, all for a 10 day window of hunting. Gun, you know, anyway. What if we could somehow utilize that same strategic thinking and apply it toward herding our friends toward heaven? Are we ready to think like this? To live as missionaries with a nothing to lose mentality as we've been reading about here in the book of Acts? Because following Jesus may require some of the hardest things we could ever imagine doing in life. But if Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, it's because when you're yoked to Jesus, as two oxen would be yoked together, then he bears that weight with you. Yes, it may be hard, but it's holy because it's with him. So Paul is ready. He's resolved. Nothing's going to stand in his way of helping other people see Jesus. And it's why they couldn't talk him down. Are we ready? Are you? My kids are at the ages now where they love catching bugs. My, our first little bug friend uh, was Stu, the water beetle. I love that they gave him a name, Stu. We've had a few more since, but it reminded me of one of my next door neighbors growing up who also loved bugs. And one time he caught a flea. He put it in a jar and something strange began to happen. You see, fleas have a vertical leap of something like seven inches, seven inches. They can jump just a little tiny. You ever seen a flea? If not, imagine like a sesame seed jumping seven inches, okay? Proportionally, that would be like me jumping over the Liberty Memorial. It's an enormous height for such a small little creature. 
But there's something fascinating about the flea. It turns out a flea will only jump as high as its environment allows. So it starts to acclimate and adjust its vertical leap. So here's what happened. My buddy puts the flea in a jar, three-inch jar like this, seals it up with a lid, and because the flea kept hitting its head on the top of the jar, eventually the flea started lowering its jump to now only jump three inches to avoid its head hitting the top. He catches a second flea, and he introduces the second flea into the mix. He puts it in there. He takes the jar off long enough, the other flea didn't jump out because it knew to only jump three inches. Then he puts the second flea in, seals it up, and the other one watches the first one only jump three inches and starts to say, you know what, I guess I should do that too. And so he starts jumping only three inches as well. Seven-inch vertical leap, naturally, but now limited down to three inches. Eventually, the two fleas had baby fleas. Now I'm making this part up, but just go with me, okay? (laughs) But those baby fleas eventually learned their limits of of jumping only to three inches, and then those baby fleas had flea babies, and on and on it goes, because every flea around them is only jumping to three inches. They're like, we're not going to do this. So three became the new norm, and what was accepted as normal eventually became expected as normal. And what I'm trying to say with all of this is, it's time to take the lid off of our Christianity. Because can I tell you what frustrates me more than almost anything else in life? It's reading the Bible. I'll tell you why. It frustrates me when I read the Bible through books like the book of Acts and I see an unstoppable church. And I see Christians who have such a faith in Christ that they will endure tremendous hardships so they could get the gospel out. And I see Christians throughout all the 28 chapters of Acts who love each other so deeply that those around the church start going, what is going on? Why are you the way that you are? I see Christians going to the ends of the earth to ensure that every single person has an opportunity to hear about this Jesus and put their faith in him. I see everyday Christians with no education, little to no spiritual development, no seminary training, who are literally turning the world on its head. But today, it's like we settle for so much less. How many of us remain unmoved by the cries of the dying around us? Unwilling to cross the street, let alone look across the dinner table to share a word of truth and love and hope to the person right there with us. Have we allowed low cultural expectations of Christians from outside the church and inside the church to inhibit us from being the transformative presence that God has called us to be in our community? How many of us are stuck in a perpetual feedback loop of private personal sin that it's limiting the infinite potential of growth we have as followers of Christ to impact the world around us? How many of us so readily look for pity and consolation whenever we experience even the mildest forms of suffering that we find ourselves unable to consider, oh, that Christ has counted me worthy to suffer for his namesake? How many of us are unable to envision 
any kind of meaningful church impact unless it happens within the four walls of the Sunday gathering. That we neglect the Monday through Saturday mission that is possible outside of those four walls. Have our buildings become jars with lids on them. I want to see God do extraordinary things. Unimaginable things. God-sized things here in our church, in our culture, in our nation and our world. Don't you? I can't be the only one, right? Like how many of us want to see a move of God sweep across the globe and be part of something that is eternal? It is time to take the lid off. And so what hard, holy thing has God been calling you to? Something perhaps that others have been trying to talk you out of, but you know deep in your bones it's from him and it's the only way that other people will know Jesus. Because remember who's gone before us and what it's cost them. I mean, it's not like this is a one-time deal. Paul's not the only person aside from Jesus who was asked to do something hard for the sake of others finding eternal life. Like Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. John was boiled alive in oil and then banished to die alone on an island. Stephen was martyred with huge boulders rolled over him. Andrew was crucified, and it says for two days, as he hung there, dying, gasping for his next breath, he continued to preach the forgiveness of Jesus. They suffered and even gave up their lives for this gospel. What hard, holy thing has God been calling you to do so that others would find life in the name of Jesus? A few weeks ago, I saw my daughter, Annie, carrying around a book. Fox's Book of Martyrs. For those unfamiliar with it, it's a, it's a book written in the 16th, or by a 16th century historian named John Fox. And what he did is he chronicled uh, just the histories of men and women who, for the sake of their faith, were either persecuted or ultimately martyred. I mean, just look at how thick this book is. People, followers of Jesus who through the centuries would give up so much for the cause of Christ so that others would know him. So I tell Annie as she's carrying around this book, I'm like, hey, kid, that's a pretty serious book right there. And she says, I know, Dad. And then she sat down and she proceeded to take her bookmark out of the book and continued to read where she left off. She's not even eight years old yet. And if I'm honest as a dad, it scares me to death to think what God might be doing in her heart as she reads this book. And in the flesh, I'm tempted as a dad to say, hey kid, you know, no one's really expecting that of you and you don't have to do that and all those things. But I'm reminded that I don't want to be the one who puts a lid on her faith. And instead, I realize that she's my example 
of the kind of faith that I want to have. And she helps me fight to keep the lid off. One more verse, and then we'll close. Acts 21, verse 15. After this, after all that we read, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. We got ready. The story began with people trying to talk Paul out of going. And by the end of it, it says that they all went. (laughs) We got ready. Paul's readiness, that first step, led to a group readiness. What would it look like for all of us to get ready? It begins with a single step. And so what's yours? What is your next step right now? I think it's time we do this all together. The band's gonna come up, and when it's time, they're gonna invite us to join in and, and worship through song. But before we start singing, I want us to take some time to wrestle with the Lord and do battle for each other. There are gonna be some prayer people around the room, some on the front, some around the sides. I encourage you to take time to approach one of them. Ask for prayer. Let's do this together. Again, the music's going to play just kind of underneath us, just some instrumental stuff for a while, and they'll invite us to sing when it's time. But this is a chance for us to talk it out with God. What next step is he putting on your heart? Perhaps what next step has he had on your heart for a while, and now it's time to listen. Process it with somebody. It could be someone next to you, someone around the room. And then... We'll sing and leave this place as a people who are ready to live our lives with the lid off. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond. Lord, for the sake of your name and for your glory, we pray, take the lid off. In our marriages, in our families, in our friendships and our homes, in our parenting, in our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our roads, Lord, would you take the lid off? We surrender to you. We give you the fear that has crept into our hearts. We give to you the secret sins that we can't share with anyone. We acknowledge to you, Lord, the doubts And the guilt that we feel, all these things we give to you, we also give to you, Lord, the low bar of Christianity that we have settled for. And we say, Father, would you take the lid off in our lives? What dreams do you have, Lord, for our world that you are inviting us to join in? What hopes do you have for our homes and our schools? and our places where we live. Take the lid off, Father. Holy Spirit, right now, would you fill this place? Would you convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come? Would you show us the way 
to reflect Jesus. And for any even in this room now, Lord, who are, who are hearing my voice, I pray that if they have never surrendered their lives to you, that this would be the moment, that this would be the time where they could say, Jesus, I give you my life. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my shame. I bring it all to you and I ask that you would lead me in the way everlasting. And Lord, for so many of us who have prayed a prayer like that countless times, God, we want this to be real, not just something we have scribbled into the back of our Bibles on this day, I this, and on this day. And may this be a real authentic shift in our souls leading to a daily picking up of our cross. Because when we choose to follow you, the path involves a cross. It starts from Calvary and you invite us to carry our crosses through our lives, ready at a moment's notice, Lord to declare your greatness. And so may we declare your greatness and not settle for less. This we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Let's take some time to respond now, to pray, to process personally and with others, and then we'll sing. God bless you guys.